This is the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I'm Jas, and you're listening to episode 7, Life Bit. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Maria Hatsu Dunford. She's the co-founder and CEO of LifeBit. Maria has an incredibly impressive background. She has expertise in computer science, machine learning, and bioinformatics. From speaking to her, it's obvious she's often the smartest person in the room. In our conversation, we speak about how the genome carries the secrets to help us live our best life, the importance of optimism, what one key thing Maria would do if she was to start another company today, and why looking for investors is like finding a groom. This conversation is filled with scientific insights and a candid honesty about what it takes to build a startup from scratch to success, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Here's a conversation with Maria. Okay, today we have with us the CEO and founder of LifeBit, Maria Hatsu Dunford. Thank you for joining us today, Maria. Thank you for having me. Just before we jump into the questions, are you able to tell our listeners a bit about your background and academia and then the business world and now what you have here with LifeBit? Yeah, absolutely. I started my journey doing computer science and biomedical informatics, then jumped to doing masters in bioinformatics and machine learning. Then I did MBA from distance or MBA training. Then I did my PhD in biomedicine, bioinformatics. Yeah, and then eventually worked as a researcher and then eventually jumped to creating LifeBeat. Prior to LifeBeat, I had created another company, which was it is a non-for-profit organization called Innovation Forum, the mission of which is to become the biggest entrepreneurial scientist network in the world. And actually it is today, spanning three different continents, 200 people working for the network on a non-for-profit basis. And then, as I said, it was LifeBit. So in the first part of this podcast, it's called Underrated or Overrated. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to throw a few terms down your way. And what I would like is for you to say whether you think it's overrated or underrated and feel free to expand as much or, or as little as you want. So the first one, wearables. Underrated, I would say. The term big data. Overrated. I think the terms big data is, is pretty much used about everything, right? Just because you have, it is overrated in the fact that people do think that just because they have big data or a lot of data, that data is useful or is somehow it has big value. Actually, it's not just about big data. It's about completeness of data it's about integrity of data it's about usefulness of data sometimes you can get much better results with smaller data that are of higher quality so quality data is i would say more important than big data the role of academia in increasing innovation underrated the potential of gene editing in eliminating diseases either now or in the near future uh, neither underrated or overrated i think gene editing like definitely creates a huge potential about curing diseases, but more importantly, directly, I did think genes that are not functioning that well, but even if it's not that useful for doing that, it's definitely extremely useful at being able to do all of the experiments needed to understand a disease. So therefore, indirectly mm -hmm. having a huge influence on understanding how disease works and how can we cure it. I would say after the discovery of DNA helix, which basically meant that we can finally read DNA, mm -hmm. understanding the different topic, but we are able to read DNA. Gene editing and editing as a whole is our ability to write. So if you can write into something, that's tremendous. I would say in many ways, it is actually underrated. <laughs> VC funding as a means of capital for startups. Overrated. The 
level of regulation in the biotech sector? Yeah, I don't think there's a simple answer to that. It depends what country you are. I think some countries are being too stringent with the regulation to a point where it suffocates innovation or makes it extremely difficult for innovation and change to happen. And then you have other countries where pretty much there is no regulation at all. And then China is a, is a glorious example of that, but, or the regulation is very loose, let's put it this way, which it's almost, sometimes it can almost be criminal. So, and, and that's why it's a very tough topic because I think you should keeping a good balance where you're regulating things, but at the same time, you're doing it in a way where it allows change and flexibility and innovation to happen and, and things to be moving forward. It's a tough balance. Eventually, you know, when it comes down to it, for the things that really, really matter, you know, like you need to have a big lobby to induce change. So yeah, I don't know, you know, it's, it's difficult to comment. And again, I'm not an expert in regulation. I, I normally work with, I'd like we have, you know, a team almost of lawyers, although we're a very small company. The role that luck plays in determining the success of startups. So I will, you know, I'll quote Einstein here, luck, you know, favors the prepared mind and luck favors the prepared companies as well. Luck is definitely one dimension, but it's not really the cure-all. Companies need to be prepared and need to be ready to seize the opportunities that different circumstances create. And the same goes for people, you know, like you need to be at the level that you can actually capture an opportunity and you can, and you can actually uh, make that, materialize that opportunity, right? So in a way, if we take luck and skill, because we know that it is possible to maximize skill, from your perspective, is also possible actually to maximize luck as well. Oh yeah, it's a discussion to be having because you know different people define luck different ways. Sure. The way I personally define luck is as a set of opportunities that come your way. I mean, there are part of opportunities that you cannot create. Things happen to you, right? But there is sure. a part of opportunities that you can actually create opportunities, right? By you know being in the right circle of people, having the right discussions pursuing the right things at the right time, you can create opportunities, right? And, um, and opportunities can just happen as well, right? It's more how prepared you are to capture those opportunities. And people do not, I mean, to, to reach success, you do need to like capture like a thousand opportunities. Sometimes it takes one or two or three or four. But at the same time, just because you lost one opportunity doesn't mean that there are not other opportunities coming. For me, that's luck. And that's right. why I do believe we, we can control luck. We can, we can or influence luck, if you like, or we can build upon luck. Moving on to LifeBit, I want to ask you a bit more about it. What I want to do is I want to put forward three questions. Feel free to answer them in any order that you want. What is LifeBit? What is the problem it is trying to solve? And why is this important? Okay, I will start with the last one. I will start with why. Why is this important? What LifeBit is doing is very important. So currently, we are generating huge volumes of, of genomic data. And not just genomic data, but all of the clinical and phenotypic data and different types of, of genetic data. Explain to some of our listeners who may not be as familiar what you refer to when you mean genomic data. Yes. So, so when we talk about genomic data, we talk about DNA data. So the ability to, when we read your DNA, so you can think a little bit like there's the biochemical process by which we actually read your DNA and that, you know, creates some raw data that no one can make sense of. Then there is a process by which we get the raw data to an informative state, to a readable state, from that readable state to a state where it's insightful, where it has meaning, right? 
So that is what we mean um, by DNA, by genomics data. And of course, in the genomics, we, it's not just your DNA, it's also your RNA. So right. your expression of your genes. And then, you know, your RNA is used in your cells to create proteins. So then you have the proteome as well. And then your proteins help in doing a lot of jobs in your body that eventually will create different metabolites and so on and so forth. That's what we mean with, with genetic data. And we can sequence across all of those, uh, both your DNA and your RNA, as well as your proteome. If you just want to tie it in with specifically how LifeBit is using this and what use case scenarios is it applying the technology to? So one of, one of the biggest areas that we are helping with is population health. Then another big area is drug discovery. And then another big area is research as well as direct-to-consumer applications because we work with a lot of direct-to-consumer companies. So if we take as an example population health and drug discovery, which are two really big applications, then normally we work now with big governmental bodies, bodies like Genomics England, for example, mm-hmm. where Genomics England has just sequenced 35,000 individuals with COVID. And that is part of the UK response to COVID pandemia. And these 35,000 individuals, we get their DNA, so their whole genome, as well as their, all of their clinical and phenotypic data. And now the exercise, you know, you are trying then to actually analyze this data in a way that it can inform vaccine and drug development, as well as in a way that can inform better diagnosis and treatment of individuals and understanding the differences also why some people get more sick because of COVID and some people you know are almost asymptomatic. Where LifeBit comes into play is first of all you know LifeBit helps with the ability to not needing to move this data around. It's maybe not that important for for the general audience but it's very important for the people that are generating this data because these data are very sensitive so you cannot be you know, shipping around this data to different locations to being analyzed. And at the same time, like Genomics England has this collection of 35,000 individuals, then a pharma, a hospital, another, you know, biobank in another country, they will have their own data. So the first problem is how can we run analysis and query jointly this data in a way that the data doesn't move? So we provide a technology that allows that, allows basically the data to be combined in a way that does not require physical uh, movement of data, which is extremely important, as I said before, for security, for regulation reasons, as well as for just because of the fact that these data are so big. For every human genomes, you are talking about 100 gigabytes. So imagine moving all of this data around. It means a lot of transfer and time costs. The second thing that we do help is that we provide a platform that acts as a full research environment. So Someone will log in in that platform, and what the first thing that they will need to be doing is being able to query the data in a way that can help them identify a subset of this data that is meaningful for further examination. So in the case of Genomics England, imagine you want to identify a subset of women who were born after a particular time because you want them to you know, be old enough or young enough and they have some pre-existing conditions and they have been responding to COVID. They have been having a bad response to COVID, right? Mm -hmm. So they have been quite severe response. So how do you get that out of 35,000 people? So we provide a very easy interface that it's literally designed for people with non-computational skills to be able to do that job. 
Now, beyond that, imagine that not only you want to be querying on, on, on the level of phenotypic and clinical indications, but also the level of genetic, because as a researcher, if you're doing especially drug discovery, you also might be interested also further reducing that subset of women on, on the women that have particular mutations on particular genes, for example. And that is another, you know, another difficult query to do over the data. So what LifeBe does, it has advanced technology that is able to take all of these huge clinical data with thousands of phenotypes, phenotypic data that has to do with, you know, with the individual, as well as all of the genetic data and put them all together in an interface where then the user, by clicking and dragging around a certain boxes and buttons, can actually query this data in a very, very rapid manner and identify the sub cohort of women in this case or any data set that is of further interest. And that's one of the big functionalities that we do. We make this data very easily accessible and queryable and you know, we basically democratize that process. The other process that we democratize is that, of course, once you now have identified the, you know, the sub-cohort of women that you'd like, women data that you'd like to further analyze, then you will need to actually run the analysis. And, and then again, the platform provides big collection of many different analytic tools where you can run them and run different analysis to extract different insights from this data. And just picking up on that, from the advantages, it seems that there's a lot of cost savings involved from how the processes would have been previously. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've, we've shown with many of our clients that we can save up to 80% of their costs. And definitely we can cut down more than 80% of their time that they would use to do. First of all, we enable applications and things that weren't possible before, like this ability to query mm -hmm. data, high dimensionality, it's not an easy thing. And especially it's not easy because it involves a lot of data manipulation and a lot of data intelligence that we need to be doing. You mentioned earlier that, you know, big data on its own is not particularly useful. It's a lot more nuanced than that. You know, the vast amount of data that you're collecting, sort of just a quote from your website, by 2025, more than 500 million human genomes will be sequenced, creating more data than YouTube and Twitter combined. Um, yeah. And you mentioned that the number one challenge is to be able to get useful or actionable data from this. How does that process look like where you have so much data you've managed to collect, but you're now trying to actually derive useful and actionable insights? But there must be such a distorted ratio between the noise and the signal. Yes, absolutely. I mean, even if I take the example before with Genomics England, so when you get the, the, the medical data and, and, and the phenotypic data, what you're actually getting is a lot of information that comes in different formats, that has a lot of sparsity, that has different interpretations because people just use different ways to describe the data. It's incredible and it's a lot of data and it's very complex. And that would be the best definition of big data, but it's almost useless. Mm. <laughs> like it's very difficult to do something with that unless it is, is structured properly and it's ingested into a system that is designed to query this data or to allow people to query this data in, in a useful way. When we work with such data, a lot of our work is to structure it further, is to standardize it, is to reduce it, is to create the particular link. So as you can understand, there's a lot of cleansing happening, standardization, as I mentioned before, structuring, connecting, all of that. Now, when you look at the genomic data, again, big data, right? And you get 100 gigabytes per genome. 
yet the genomic data come, you know, in, a, in an orphan way. They have no annotations. Mm -hmm. So literally what you are getting is huge strings of AAA, TCG, and so on and so forth, right? Yep. And it's just like, it's big data though. So mm -hmm. good luck doing something with that. <laughs> I remember on the early discussions, you know, when genomics people were like, oh my God, you know, someone can actually steal my, my genomes and do something with that. The joke that was always within, you know, the research community was just like, you know, whoever managed to steal it and actually <laughs> do something with that data, we'll hire him, right? And it's a little bit of a joke in the company as well. Not that, you know, like, of course, security is of paramount and of course people can do things with the data. Yeah. It's very difficult. So the exercise there is the exact opposite from what mm -hmm. we would do normally with the medical data. From there, what we will do, we'll pull information from about 100 different databases out there. We'll pull information, we will analyze this data in many different ways because we have different analytics to, to actually measure uh, mutation frequencies. And we will go basically and undergo a huge task to annotate this data, to make it meaningful. And then by annotating this data again and again and again to link it with diseases, with risks, uh, with what, you know, gene annotations, with understanding what of these variants are of particular type of another type and the different mutations, the pathogenicity of those, then the functions, you know, when they, those genes are involved and what functions are they being involved, you know, what diseases does that lead, what phenotype does that mean, because sometimes it cannot be a disease. So imagine all of that information, you need to link it to that, you know, huge string of <laughs> ATs, CNGs, right? Yeah. And that's what we are pulling together. So. As I said before, when we're working with that, a big part is that. And another big part is like, we need to be building many different algorithms, many different applications that they can now analyze the data in particular ways. So one of those, one of the most advanced applications that LifeMeter has built is this AI-based application that you can literally input gene expression data, so RNA-level data, and then on the basis of the gene expression, it will actually tell you what a particular drug does and what diseases can it target. These are the type of analysis that normally, you know, some of the most advanced analysis someone can run. Or they can run a simple analysis as what is your ancestry, which apart from, you know, being something really nice to know, <laughs> it's also very important when, when you identify cohorts because you want to know the, the genetic background of your different cohorts because your cohort of individual is very, very similar. So from the same ancestry, then it means particular things. When it's very, very diverse, then it means other things that they have their benefits and, and their disadvantages when you're trying to do drug discovery or when you're trying to do treatment or diagnosis and so on and so forth. If we were to be extremely optimistic and ambitious about you know, LifeBit and the future of tech, in, in your viewpoint, what is a potential best case scenario in how LifeBit can end up transforming the landscape of health and medicine? Is it successfully treating a disease that currently has no cure? Could it be preventing that disease in the first place? Or is it something even more ambitious, like curing aging altogether even? At the end of the day, it's, it's much more about what is the potential of the information that is hidden and is transcribed into our genes, right? And once we understand that information, we understand what it means and how we can use it, then how can that help us? And, and the answer is to all of those things. Of course, we can cure aging. Of course, we can prevent diseases cure diseases, increase our quality of life. A lot of people see things as a disease-centric or as aging where we are like, our bodies are degrading. What's more important, and a lot of people do not talk about that, is 
having bodies working their optimal way. A, a lot of people out there suffer. You know, the fact that your body gets sick or the, that you have a, a speeded aging process, right? You age faster, as we call it, yep. is because you are not living, you know, in the best possible ways that your body could actually function. And I think for me, that is much more exciting than mm-hmm. even aging or, or curing diseases. Because if you are able to understand how to live in, in your best way, right? How to treat your body in the best way, then you're never going to get sick <laughs> right. or almost never. And for sure, you are going to be, you know, you are going to be slowing down aging massively, right? By, you know, like Jennifer Lopez, for example, has done a good job. <laughs> <laughs> the, the script of how you should be living your, how you should be living in the best way, that script is encoded in the genes itself? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And not only encoding our gene with like a lot of people just look at the risks, but it's not just about the risk. Imagine that you come from a genetic background. Like if you are Asian, most probably you cannot handle metabolized alcohol as good. Mm. It has to do with your genes. It has nothing, you know, it's nothing personal with the Asians as per se. (laughs) Now imagine you are Asian living, you know, in central London Mm-hmm. There is a lot of drinking happening. As an Asian, most probably you not, should not be doing that drinking. You know, my, my husband's, for example, heritage is Irish, Irish and German. I mean, he can drink until the end of life. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's not the same level of metabolism. And because it's not the same level of metabolism, what will happen to your body, the one body will actually process the alcohol much, much faster, you know, making it less toxic. For your body, the other body won't be able to handle it. As such, will create a lot of like intoxication, a lot of like toxins, a lot of things onto your body that anyhow are going to be even even DNA DNA um, damage or break breaking. Not <laughs> here. I don't want to be quoted here that alcohol does that directly, but like when you know where you are completely inducing your body into circumstances that create damage on a consistent manner, then yes, you are creating uh, DNA, uh, DNA damage eventually. Relating to that, what would be your take on, for example, the epigenetic side of things where you may have environmental triggers that could result in changes in which genes are expressed or not? When, when you eat an apple, what happens is like, when you have an empty stomach, your genes work in a particular way. The moment you will eat something, the genes that need to metabolize that food are going to get activated and going to start metabolizing the food. It's as simple as that. Or similarly, you know, when you're not sick, your immune system is not fired up. Your immune system is always active, but it's not, it's not 100% active. When you get sick, your immune system gets uh, fired up and particular genes are going to be starting to get activated that previously were not. To, in order to enable your body to deal with pretty much the infection that you have, right? That's mm-hmm. the reason why you're getting fever, for example. You know, you don't get fever every day. <laughs> you, you die otherwise. And those are, for example, good gene. That's a good example of like, you know, a set of genes and functionalities that you just like, you know, will switch on in order to get the temperature up. So you can actually, your body can actually kill the foreign microbes by, by heating them up to, to a level that wouldn't be friendly to them. And, and that's induced by everything. And it's, it's very similarly, if you're a Nordic person and then you are coming and you are sunbathing in Australia or in Greece, again, you're going to be having gene expression to a level where, you know, it's not suited for your body or you're going to, you know, you're, again, your genes are going to be responding completely different to a person that lives in Africa, for example. The cost for sequencing the human genome 
went from being hundreds of millions uh, to a few hundred dollars, you know, in, in under 20 years. Whereas the cost for drug development in the pharma sector has seen an opposite trend, maybe not to that degree as such. Do you think these two disparities will have important implications in the future of both these sectors and which therapeutics are favored for? Yes, absolutely. So I can say yes. The reason why drug discovery has been becoming um, more expensive is due to the fact that, you know, drug discoveries has been like, I love always referencing my grandmother, but pretty much, you know, like, <laughs> using processes very similar, a little bit more sophisticated than what my grandmother would use, which would be like, oh, I know another grandmother, who know another my, my great-grandmother, who used to use this, you know, herb and used to cure this cough that you have, right? Right. And a pharma was doing the same. The only difference is that they would go and take all of these different herbs that were using everywhere. They would just like extract the, the, the active compound and, and then they will just like package that into a pill. And unfortunately, as, as the time has passed, you know, there are only that many low-hanging fruits <laughs> right. in terms of drugs that can cure, you know, like very not complex or rare diseases, if you like, right? Because they yep. have been treated. Unfortunately, most of our generation is dying because of complex, chronic, and rare diseases. It's not really dying because you get uh, a flu. Of course, then COVID came <laughs> to it. <be>, but... <laughs> <laughs> so in order to now to treat complex, chronic and rare diseases, you know, no, no herb from your grandmother where you can go and just like extract the chemical compound, you know, uh, do some sophisticated process around it and convert it to a pill. You actually need to understand what's happening with that disease. And that's why drug discovery has become more expensive because the low hanging fruits into what drugs could we have to treat all of the more mundane diseases, if you like. Mm -hmm. have been actually discovered and pharmacomas have them. And now the diseases that we have a problem treating are very difficult diseases. And those diseases, there is no easy answer. There is no easy pill. There is no easy herb, if you like. You need to actually understand the disease. You need to, and they are multifaceted diseases. They touch many different things. A lot of people argue that cancer, it's not even a disease. It's actually your body breaking down and just going, basically the cell in your body going crazy and you know, overexpressing. There is a lot of things where, where we do not yet fully understand, where we are um, now understanding more and more, but it's very clear that you know, there is no one pill treatment for those things. So according to you, where should pharma be investing more money to try and overturn this trajectory? Oh, genomics. And also pharma, because we're talking about big data. So pharma is one of these industries that in theory, they have a lot of big data because they have been running clinical trials for forever. Yet all of their data are really bad. They're really sparse. They are really not in a single format. Basically, they're unusable for the big majority of it. And don't get me wrong, they have also some good data, but it's one of the big struggles that pharma has because and now they are trying, they need to invest more money into generating more data, sequencing. So, you know, sequencing the DNA, reading the DNA, getting the DNA of all of the individuals on clinical trials, running population genomic studies, investing on getting data from hospitals, creating you know, big cohorts where they integrate genomic data with clinical data, with phenotypic data. Uh, these are the things that they need to be doing. Moving from the science to the finances, uh, you recently raised Series A funding, uh, 7.5 million if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How has the fundraising process been like? So it's been quite challenging. I'm not going to lie if I'm going to say that it wasn't. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was a fast process. It took about four months. 
yeah, it took about four months. It was it was quite exhausting in terms of like was a lot of work, a lot of uh, a lot of things to be done. I was quite successful in the end. When you say it was quite a lot of work, was it more so trying to explain the complex nature of of the business because it sits at the intersection of everything from AI to bioinformatics to biomedicine? Or was it trying to actually find the right investors to pitch to? It was more the second because right. by now I was speaking to quite sophisticated investors that knew the topic quite well or maybe not precisely what life is doing, but they knew the general sector and how things are, what's happening. So from that point on, it was easy to try to bring them on board on what exactly Lactit is trying to do, where what's the mission of the company, what life is, you know, where the company is heading. So then the challenge was much more to identify the right investor. That's always the challenge because when you bring an investor on board, you are almost getting married to someone. So it's <laughs> for me, it's almost like a marriage decision. So there is a lot of dating that has to happen before you, you make the decision. And as part of that dating process, uh, when you were thinking of actually tying the knot with one of the investors, did you have a particular framework in mind on, you know, what you would base your decision on, which groom to go with? Yes, of course. I mean, it's a process that you run. And as such, you know, like I have a three-stage process. Again, I've said it, I say it every time to my, when I'm asked this, my three stages are the first stage, you go out there and it's almost the market research stage where you don't really pitch, but you, you know, start with your close group of, you know, friendly investors and advisors and mentors. And then you basically, you know, pitch your vision and you say to them, really what you're trying to do, but in a way that is not a formalized pitch, if you like. And then you get feedback about from them, you know, what they like, what they understand, what they don't understand, and so on and so forth. And then you try to do that with as many people as possible out there, where you can try to, you basically you are trying to get as many meetings as possible and get in front of people. The whole concept on of stage one is to try to get as many meetings as possible, talk to as many people as possible, and, and try to understand, try to understand who is out there, who will be interested in you, who, you know, who will you find interesting, you know, what is the market now needing, you know, what resonates with the market, what doesn't resonate with the market, how can you explain things better, and so on and so forth. And stage one is, you know, it's, it's completed once you have now your pitch at the stage where to every person that you are pitching, they really want to have your, a second meeting with you. Are they, everyone gets it, even if it's your grandmother or you know, the most sophisticated investor out there. Uh, and then stage two starts, where in the stage two, you're just narrowing down. And one of the first criteria to narrow down is you're going back to those investors where you're now having your second meeting. So you say like, it's really great that we're having our second meeting. But now I need to know from you if you're going to be investing in the company. And if you are to invest in the company, what are your, your decision-making criteria and what will you need to be seeing from us? And then, you know, they say one, two, three, and then you ask, really, is it just one, two, three, or is there four and five there? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and you take those list of requirements. And then at that stage, just by simply asking that question, pretty much more than half of, of the people that were excited to keep engaging with you will just disappear after right. that meeting. And then, and then you will be left with, you know, about one third or, or half of the investors that you were speaking initially. And then in that, you know, third meeting, you're going to go through this, you know, some investors will just also, you know, disconnect that stage or will say like, you know, I'm not so sure, you know, there's not going to be a good fit and you'll realize it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, you'll know, and the idea is to keep narrowing down, narrow down, narrow down, narrow down. And, and by always leading with the thing of like, great, you know, now I presented you everything you needed to see from us. So are you going to be investing or not? And, you know, they will need to be making a decision. 
And then eventually you will be left with, you know, a very small number of investors that are going to be ready to invest. And even from this small number of investors, only a part of them, they're going to be moving fast enough, right? And they're going to issue the term sheet. And then that's the point where then you can actually decide on, on the basis. And there is where like, you know, phase three starts where you decide on a particular investor in a particular term sheet. And then uh, you do then the remainder of the work to get the money in the bank because you're not over until the money in the bank has reached, not when you've signed the uh, term sheet. It's something that I always say to anyone, you know, to especially first time founders. It's very important to, it's not done until it's done. If you were going to start LifeBit today, what is the one thing that you would do differently? Oh, stress less. <laughs> Sleep more. <laughs> has, it, has it been pretty much been 24-7 all the way through? Yeah, for three years now. <laughs> but it seems to be paying off. Well, yes, but it has come with certain sacrifices, right? On I, a, could, I can only imagine, yeah. For both myself and my co-founder, it has come on, on a big price on, on, on many things. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think we both have been having our fair shares of, you know, breakdowns and burnouts and all of that right it almost seems like the burnout and the breaking down that seems to be part and parcel of being a founder yes but that is a part it is but i do believe like if, if i am to create another company after life fit yeah i don't think you know as a second time founder i, I don't think i will gonna be Working hard is, is part of the job, right? right? And you need to be working 24 hours, but like working hard is not normally what creates the biggest burnout and breakdown. What creates that is working hard, not taking care of yourself, not sleeping, stressing all the time, you know, living at that city level of like, you know, a thousand percent. Those are the things that normally bring you down. It's not the fact that you are working, you know, 12 hour, 14 hour days. That's, that's normal. You've touched on, you know, the difficulties that you faced, uh, both you and your co-founder. There must have been situations or moments when you thought this is not going the direction that we want it to go. You may, I don't know if this is true or not, but you may have had conversations or at least thoughts in your head about, you know, is it time to move on or try something else? How did you manage to navigate the balance between, you know, persisting through um, and at at the same time trying to keep your sanity? Okay, so this is this is my thing with my co-founder. I don't think I'm not sure it works for everyone, but neither my co-founder nor myself we are like 20 years old. Where you know, like this is our like chance to fame or right to fame or whatever. This for us is is you no, know, it's our way having the biggest impact we can have in the world. And if having the biggest impact we have in the world, it's not happening with this company, then we can do that in another context by working for another big company or creating another company or somewhere somehow differently, right? Right. Because we both have a skill set to do that. So it's just a way. It's not it's not the end all. That realization really helps. The second thing is that we have been brutal honest where we have been actually even now where we have put, you know, red lines where we say like, you know something? Like when we were in Texas, because the company started from Techstars, we entered Techstars and I remember one of my investors, uh, current investors and mentors back then when we started the mentorship program in Techstars and eventually she ended up investing in us, uh, Maria Dramaliotti-Taylor from Beacon Capital, who is one of the best investors in town, in London, mm-hmm. if not the world for me. Like she started and told me like, you know, I, you know, just for, you know, like she's like full disclosure, you know, I'm not going to invest most probably in you because we never invest in this sector and all of that. And then I'm like, Maria, full disclosure. I don't know if I'm doing a company after this. Let's see if we're going to be successful. <laughs> that was my, you know, like my understanding with Pablo and that our pack 
where we were like, if we do not succeed in Texas, we're not going to do this because clearly we're not going to be good enough for this job. Then when we finished Texas and we're extremely successful, then we're like, okay, if we do not fundraise our seed round by February and we finished Texas in, in October, so within three, four months, and you know we managed to raise the exact number of millions that we needed to raise to make this work, then we're not going to do this. We're going to quit and we're going to move on. And then along the way, even now for Series A, we said like, if we do not manage to fundraise a Series A, well, that's the end of everything, right? Right. And, but even before that, we have been having like particular milestones across our way where we're just like, that doesn't happen. Then we'll just walk away, you know, because life is too short. And a lot of, you know, founders when that, you know, I mentor now, when I say these things to them, it's just like, what is the point that you walk away from this? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm not walking away. This is my baby. This is my life. And they go crazy about it. And I'm like, right, you need to have an exit strategy for you, not for the company, because that will keep you sane. That is like where, and, and what we found with Pablo is like, a lot of people are afraid to do that because they're like, oh my God, you know, like, I don't know, it feels like they are losing something, but for me and Pablo, it works on the exact way. My co-founder is called Pablo in the sense that because we have that milestone and we know it's there, then it's just like, we don't want to lose this. <laughs> it gives you this thing where it's just like, okay, you know, if we don't make it from there and we're serious about it, that's our end. So then we put all our focus, all our effort. So it refocuses everything. It refocuses our efforts. It gives meaning to everything. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, Every time there is an ending to something, it I think it me- makes the journey to that something much more meaningful than if you are just like, I'm going to be doing this no matter what. A neglected topic or area that no one is looking at, but you think that it deserves more attention? Oh, so many things. <laughs> <laughs> Clinical trials are a big problem. And there aren't, you know, it's still the problem is not solved, but there are companies trying to do it. And I'm sure, you know, in the next years, we're going to be seeing some miracles. I mean, clinical trials, you know, they help com- big pharma create a lot of drugs and that's really great, but they also help individuals. It serves them their lives. And I think it's a little bit neglected on like, how can we actually match the right individuals to the right clinical trials so that they can actually not just be used like lab rats to test drugs and bring drugs, but to actually save them, you know? It's tough and it's a very complex topic. It's, it's very tough. Another thing, you know, it's not yet there, is how we can bring more health monitoring on the everyday life, mm-hmm. how we can have, you know, different gadgets uh, that can help us, you know, wearables. That's why I'm saying wearables are underrated and not overrated. Right. Because even the wearables that we have, we, we just have so much capacity and technology to create so much smarter wearables that track better things, that, that can do better by biometric tracking can do many different things and somehow we're not doing a really great job to integrate i mean we put something on a watch but then you know like we have been wearing a watch you know like 400 (laughs) right so really what was the innovation there you know we just Mm -hmm. put fancy stuff on a watch which is really great what i would like to see is for example be putting fancy stuff onto a bra for women where you can actually diagnose cancer and there is a startup that you know seems to be having some sort of technology or track heart rates or you know as women are getting pregnant do something you know just like we have so many wearables that they are just not smart they're just clothes literally like just like the same cloth that was like in ancient Greece is the same cloth that we're wearing right now. You know, it does like it with a better designer and, you know, some, you know, fancy label on it. So that is how it feels for the majority. That's why I do feel that wearables are, are 
There's a lot of innovation that can happen with that. What is the one view that you hold in this space, which most people would disagree with you on, but you strongly believe you are right about? People disagree with me quite often. <laughs> uh, I have a lot of strong views, which is why I guess, you know, I tend to disagree with people. I guess I'm quite optimistic also on things. I, I do believe in general that we are going to be curing certain diseases and even actually fast-tracking aging much faster than what people think. Mm-hmm. So, and there is a lot of, you know, disagreement around that. Yep. I generally like normally play for the most more optimistic team. There is a lot of money going right now into aging. I think there are people looking at aging from many different uh, perspectives. I think there is every day there is almost a new discovery. At least from a research perspective, when we say discovery, we mean new insight, new understanding of of how it works and how things are done. Also, I don't see aging as you know we find the pill that reverses aging. That I don't think is never going to happen, but. I see it as a holistic thing. And it's one yeah. of these things that is also being treated in a holistic way. Like there are a lot of things looking at aging from the nutrition, from the amount of exercise, from the amount of sleep we take down to like, you know, the genetics behind it, you know, the different like biochemical processes happening into our body, the different, you know, clinical mm-hmm. potentially interventions we could do at it, the different drugs, of course. We are looking at the holistic way. So I'm confident that we're going to be having some really good things much faster than what, the, what people anticipate. And so basically my prediction there, but maybe that's going to be too useful, is just like people hang in and try to, you know, like do not create that much damage into their bodies into the next, you know, 10 years, then for sure, then we're going to have like great things coming that will help with the slowdown of aging or regeneration as a whole. Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. And that was this week's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, or even if you didn't, Please let us know by leaving a comment or any feedback in either the Instagram or LinkedIn posts. And to catch all future episodes, head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, click subscribe. And if you could leave a rating, that would be great. This is the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I'm Jas. Thank you for listening. Till next time.